You're just gonna stay angry at God for the rest of your Whether it's popular or not, we're seeking out what pleases the Lord. Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the UPC Later podcast and the conclusion of Keaton's story. The last four weeks have been such a pleasure getting to know Keaton, getting to hear his story, and having it released to you all. I want to thank you so much for allowing him the space and the time to share his incredible journey with all of us. Next week, we will be back with a brand new guest, brand new story that I'm really excited for you all to hear. As well, there will be new stories released on the Instagram page for people who aren't ready to talk just yet but want to get their story out. So stay tuned for those as well. And with that said, let's get right to Keaton's story and let's go. All right, friends, we are back with the conclusion of Keaton's story. Um, Keaton, thanks so much for being here. Why don't you walk us through um, a quick breathing exercise before we get into everything? Yeah, um, before we do, I just want to start by saying thank you um, to everyone who has reached out to me over the, over the past four weeks, and I'm sure will continue to reach out. Um, whether you've reached out to say that you felt seen by my story or this has spoken to you know, your experience or you've reached out to share concern. Um, all of this it really truly is a, is a is an important collective conversation and I'm just grateful to be a part of it. Um, so yeah, let's let's do one more breathing exercise. This week, I'd love to do a bit of mantra breathing. Um, and if you're not comfortable with the word mantra, that is that's okay. Um, it can be a scripture, it can be really any phrase that, that helps you feel grounded and at peace. Um, if you don't have a mantra or a scripture, I invite you to use mine. Um, my mantra is nothing to hide, nothing to prove. And this came um, from years of therapy and coaching. But very simply, on the inhale through your nose, just remind yourself that you have nothing to hide. And this is how we overcome patterns of, of shame. And then on the exhale, just remind yourself that, that you have nothing to prove. And this is how we overcome patterns of judgment. So this week, just do this at your own pace. I will. Um, nothing to hide, nothing to prove, or whatever works for you. Okay. So, um, yeah, just a quick recap of, of where we ended. So. After working in unsafe churches, uh, I made the very difficult decision to leave the UPCI and oneness Pentecostalism altogether. Um, I, I moved across the country to help start a non-denominational church. And the team who started that church uh, was also, also largely made up of people who uh, left oneness Pentecostalism themselves. And so in, in many ways, that was just a really healing experience, right? Um, I got to be a part of a very small community of people who understood the context that I was coming from, and they held space for me to heal. So you know, each of us, because we grew up in the same environment, understood like the gravity of the decisions we were making. Right? We were all doing so many things for the first time. Um, and that's a gift that I, I know now many people who leave hyper-fundamentalist environments just aren't given. And so I'm, I am so grateful for, for that. Um, but it does take a very long time 
to deprogram 20 years of indoctrination. Um, Absolutely. This, it is a long journey. And um, for me, for years, I mean, still to this day, in some ways, I, I, I've been shedding a lot of the beliefs and just the patterns from my past life. So you know, really, I went at about 20 years old from knowing all of the answers, and I kind of put answers here in quotes to, to every question, to feeling like spiritually, I was just floating in space, completely untethered, right? I was still gaslighting myself every day, asking myself, you know, were they right? Am, am, I, am I living in sin? And I was still programmed to think in terms of fear, right? Um, is God going to take away my gifts like I was taught? Uh, is God going to take away the parts of life that I love because I left the truth? And I, still, I had family members sending me messages saying that I had left the truth, um, you know, that God had put me on their hearts for some reason, usually after I posted something that <laughs> conflicted, <laughs> right? Um, and all of this just culminated in a, uh, a pretty severe panic attack on, uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, while Sunday you were still, while you were attending uh, yeah. the church that you had gone across the country to start with these people? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was dealing with all of this, all of this dissonance. Um, I was, I was really building up from, from the ground in terms of what I believed. And um, Sunday mornings for a very long time were very difficult for me because they just carried a ton of emotional baggage, right? Like I was involved in ministry from the time I was a, a child. Um, Sunday mornings always meant that. And uh, yeah, so I, I had this really deep panic attack on a Sunday morning. Um, my, my vision like completely stopped working for a while. Um, I felt this very just deep sense of terror and dread. Um, I, at the time I described it as feeling like there was no good left in the world and that there would never be any good in the world. It was just like a, an absence of hope, um, I guess is the way to put it. And, and for the first that, time, yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to ask, did you, were you aware of that? It was a panic attack at the time that it was happening. Oh yes. Thankfully. So I'm so grateful that at this point in my life, I had already been exposed to the importance of meditation and breath work. And that's really why we've started every episode with breath work, because when I, when I realized what was happening and that this was a panic attack, I was able to switch my attention to focusing on my breathing and just regulating my nervous system. And that got me out of it much faster than I think I would have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after this, you know, terrifying moment on a Sunday morning, um, like talk me through what happened next. Were you still attending the church? Did you take a step back? How were your thoughts um, about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was still in, involved at the church very much at this time. Um, and, you know, most of what I think led to that panic attack had more to do with my um, Pentecostal upbringing than it had to do with what I was, you know, trying to figure out was my current beliefs. But, you know, one, one thing I'll say about 
the church that, that I was attending, um, that I was helping to build, it really did teach me how different a, a healthy, safe church is versus an, an unsafe church. Because we embraced differing opinions. It was, it was a safe space to just be honest and say like, I don't agree with your interpretation of this. I, I don't agree with, with how you approach this, but that's okay. Let's like keep an open dialogue. Whereas how I grew up, you couldn't even have those conversations. So I, I stayed at that church for, for quite a while and um, it, with fundamentally differing beliefs, but it, it was an open conversation. And that's an important, an important thing for people. Yeah, that seems really um, refreshing for you to have in yeah. that season of life, um, even though you were still internally, you know, internally, you were in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, and, you know, honestly, what what ended up changing my life for the better at, at this moment um, wasn't church. It was it was therapy. Yes. Uh, so after, after that panic attack, that was sort of the catalyst for me to start taking my mental health seriously and start working with a therapist. And now, you know, a, a 10, 11 years later, um, I consider myself just really lucky to have worked with so many amazing mental health experts as a patient and, and now as a colleague in the work I do. And I've learned just a ton about my brain, how it developed. And I want to share a bit of that because what I've learned is my experience and how all of this manifested in, in my psyche is in no way unique. Um, a lot of people have felt these same effects. So it really, at the high level, what I learned is that I spent most of my early life with my nervous system in this constant state of fight or flight, right? Uh, and this is really common among, especially children who experience fear and trauma at an early age. And for me, this manifested as a CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I just wanna take a second to talk about CPTSD and how it differs from PTSD. So yeah, absolutely. we're all pretty familiar with PTSD. Um, the main difference with CPTSD or complex PTSD is unlike PTSD, where there is a, a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events, uh, but the, the sense of self remains intact. Like you understand who you are, both before and after the event. In complex PTSD, your sense of self, like who you are, is either very underdeveloped or it is destroyed in, in the process of the traumatic event. And so for me, because I was you know, I, I was raised in church. I, I, that's all I ever knew, all I ever believed. I didn't have a sense of who I was once the church was removed. Um, I, like I said, I just felt like I was floating in space. And over the course of a decade, as I continued to process all of this and work with therapists and psychiatrists, um, psychologists, behavioral health experts, coaches, uh, I found that my CPS, uh, CPTSD manifested in four ways. Okay. So first was the hypervigilance of people. Second is toxic self-shaming. Third was like this deep fear and just distrust of leaders, any sort of a leader. And then fourth is 
emotional dysregulation. So let's just talk about each of these. Yeah, I would love that. Awesome. Okay, so hypervigilance. Um, this is really just an elevated state of constantly assessing the threats around you. So since childhood for me, I've just always been aware of people's nonverbal cues, like their, their body language or their tone of voice or their facial expressions. And um, I was constantly assessing what this meant for me, right? How were they perceiving me? And so I was always on edge. This was my default state, kind of like a like an overwound rope, right? Just like yeah. just so much tension. And what this ended up turning into in, in adulthood was just being overly critical of myself and of others. So, you know, judgment, right? It became sort of a natural response to the world to, to judge others. Whether I vocalize that judgment or not, that's what I trained my brain to do. So that's hypervigilance. Um, you know, toxic self-shaming was... You know, because I'm looking at the world and I'm looking at myself through this hypervigilant, hypercritical lens, really, I saw every mistake that I made as just a massive lapse in judgment, right? Um, I felt the, the need constantly to apologize. And I know you've talked about that in your story, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me, though, a lot of my self-shaming manifested as sexual shame. And that really was just due to purity culture and you know I shared my experience with the pastor and as a teenager growing up in Pentecostal church um, sexual shame was very very real and you know purity culture and sexual shame and adverse effects on mental health that's all very well documented right um, but you know one thing I would love to leave people with here is um, the concept of neural pathways so if you're not familiar our brain forms these really amazing physical connections between neurons called neural pathways. And these are formed by re repeated behavior or repeated thought. So the longer we think something or the longer we do something, these connections between these neurons grow. So I like to visualize these kind of like a muddy dirt road. Um, you know, the more you, the more you use that road, the deeper the trench becomes. So when you, when you learn at a young age or you, teach a child at a young age that sex is morally wrong and you attach the act of not having sex or not thinking about sex or not doing anything sexual with their self-worth you're training a neural pathway a really strong association between anything sexual and shame and you know that's that's fine i, I, I could i could i guess see the argument for uh, for a child but that neural pathway doesn't spontaneously change when someone gets married, right? right. When, when you train this association, you train it for life. Um, that takes a lot of work to build that, to build that back, right? To tear down those, those old neural pathways, those old associations. So toxic self-shaming. Um, you know, I talked about the deep fear and distrust of leaders. Um, Dr. Martin Seligman's work on learned helplessness is great here. You know, we learn that ongoing trauma really does wire the brain for fear and distrust as a response. Anytime we perceive additional abuse or what we might think is abuse, um, our brain goes right back into fight or flight. And for me, this was especially with leaders. So, you know, it started with church leaders, but it continued to manifest with managers and mentors and anyone who I perceived as having authority 
I was, I did not trust them and I was afraid of them. And then last was emotional dysregulation. So I had a very difficult time staying in a state of calm. Um, my emotions were just constantly swayed by the group. And that's really whatever the group I defined it as. So as a child and you know, growing up, it, it was the church, right? The emotions of the group really, really mattered, right? Throughout the worship service or throughout the week. Right. But then as I got older, it could be a political party. It could be a company. Whatever the group believed, I was okay believing, right? Without challenging. And when we're highly emotional and our nervous systems are activated, we, we just don't make good decisions and we're much more easy to coerce. So a great example of this is mob mentality, right? Again, very well documented. Um, when, when, a, when a human being is part of a mob, they will make decisions that they would never make as an individual. Right. So it's important to just beware of, of anyone who aims to keep you in a highly emotional state. And, and that was, C I, that was CPTSD for me. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about the highly emotional state, um, like just listening to you speak about it, I feel like I'm having flashbacks to these services that were so emotionally charged. Um, with, with different emotions, like sometimes it was this joyous, joyous celebration and everybody was dancing and everybody was so happy and everybody was celebrating. Um, and even if you weren't happy, you were like, well, everybody else is happy. Let's celebrate. Let's dance. Let's rejoice. And then there's these really, really heavy services where there's a lot of weeping and for hours. And then, you know, I remember as a kid, not even knowing why I was crying. I was just crying. Um, so just mm -hmm. listening to you talk about that kind of brought me back to that for a minute. Um, but I feel like it's really important that, and so commendable that you took the time to, um, to go to therapy, to seek professional help and to acknowledge these things within yourself. Cause I know it's not easy and it must've been a really hard thing to do um, to acknowledge that that's where all of these events that we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks ended up bringing you to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm so, so, so grateful that my life took the turn that it did and that I was able to have access to those kinds of resources. Because um, I know not everyone, not everyone has that kind of access. Right. But I also think these are important things to talk about that we don't talk about enough because as, as a young Pentecostal, right, when, when someone left the church, we were trained to say that they were just church hurt, right? Like that, that is the default response. Yes. Um, right. And like now we know that this is just gaslighting and it's also a lie because you know, if, if the church is people, not a building like we were taught and church people are causing harm, then the, the church is causing harm. Um, but the real problem with this church hurt, like default reply is that it's not quantifiable. It's easy to just dismiss someone's very real pain. And my hope is that even though this is a more clinical way to think about church hurt, if we can think about it from a mental health perspective, it makes it easier to measure and to understand the very real impact that these kinds of dogmatic religions have on, on developing psychology, right? All right. of this stemmed from the church environment in which I was raised. And, and I think too, when, you know, it's the tip, you know, the church hurt, they're backslidden. It's just like these very 
very few words to explain why somebody left. Um, and it's very simply said, and it's very said matter of factly, um, over the pulpit in small groups as to why people believe I know for myself, I used to say it too. Like I used to judge harshly when people left and I thought I was better than them because I stayed until I myself was in the position to leave. And I was like, Oh, this is why people leave, or this is why some people leave. And, and I think that's important as to why this whole podcast exists is because we're taking back these stories. You know, somebody could watch you have left and nobody would have known that this is everything that happened, uh, but they assume. And so it's, it's not that these stories should be told when we leave, but it's the fact that people make up a story for themselves and then they run with it Mm. and they take our story and our voice from us as to why people are leaving the organization. Yeah. I think this goes back to, you know, in the last episode, we talked about those three pillars of control, right? Right. This is that second pillar. This is controlling someone else's narrative really controlling yeah. the influence because if the church was honest about why most people left, right? I know many people who have left one is Pentecostalism. 90% of them left because they studied, right? Not because, not just because they were hurt. Like, yeah, there's a lot of pain, but the church can't acknowledge that. Right. That would, that would hurt them quite a bit. Yeah. A lot of people have kind of dug in and started to unravel the things that have been taught for so long, exactly. um, which leads me to my next question. Um, where do you find your beliefs now? Um, Cause like you said, we were oneness Pentecostal. There was a lot of things along the way that you didn't agree with that you started to deconstruct throughout your journey. So where have you found yourself now that you're so far removed from your time there? Where do you find your beliefs now? I love this question, and I love that you ask people this question, so thank you. Um, okay, so I have this this yes or no question that I, that I also love to ask people on the topic of beliefs. And before I answer your question, um, I hope you will flatter me in answering my yes or no question. Okay. Okay. Are your beliefs right now exactly what they were five years ago? It's like they're not the same they were five years ago. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and the, the truth is, no one, no one says yes, right? Um, I've asked this question to a lot of people, and of course, they they all say no because we're constantly growing in our understanding of the world and our perspective of this of the role that we play in in this this big thing that's happening, right? I mean, even the even the UPCI has changed its stance on many things, right? Beards, movies, television, live sports, playing cards. Even their current belief on how to achieve salvation is less than 80 years old. So if we know rationally that our views are just constantly evolving, why are we still so sure that the beliefs that we hold today are set in concrete, right? This is, this is yet again just an example of confirmation bias. So evolving our beliefs really is a sign of growth, not weakness. Right. Evolving our beliefs is, is important, but it's only a sign of growth if we can acknowledge that our beliefs are evolving. And if we can allow space for other people to evolve their beliefs. Yeah. So that's what I believe. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I've held so many different belief titles um, 
and I'm just not interested in those anymore. Yeah, no, I love I mean, that. That seems yeah. very freeing and liberating. Ram Das, who is a, was a, an amazing teacher in more of the Eastern traditions, um, he said, "We are all just walking each other home." And I guess if you could sum my current belief system up in any way, it would be that um, I'm interested in helping people find home and finding my own home through others. I love that. How beautiful. Um, I guess my next question would be, um, I haven't asked this one before, but I would love to know from your point of view, um, what was the hardest part about leaving? Um, the hardest thing was being honest with myself. Um, you know, this, this was, I had taught myself for so long to hide my beliefs or hide my questions and to not face just difficult facts about myself. Um, really looking in the mirror and asking who, who are you, right? What do you want out of life? How do you get there? Yeah. Um, that is hard. That is very difficult. And, um, yeah, that was that was for sure the most difficult part. And what do you think the best part about leaving has been? So well, I, I want to give people hope, you know, because it's it's yeah. tough, it's tough to leave, and we need to acknowledge the toughness around that. But there's yeah. there's you know positivity and happiness after leaving. So, what do you think was the best part for you um, with leaving? Well, I mean, it's what comes from the hard part, right? Like looking in the mirror and being honest with who you are currently and, and how it differs from where you want to be. That's a challenging thing to do. But because of, because of that, because I, you know, as Joseph Campbell said, um, in like, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Because I, I went through that cave, I was able to come out a, a version of myself that I can truly be proud of. Like I am so grateful for life, the life I get to lead, the people I get, I get to, to, you know, live my life with um, the freedom that I have to, to, to question and to just constantly seek truth. Um, that is worth every second. I love that so much. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's people listening who are, they have left, they've been gone for a long time. There's people listening who are considering leaving um, and everywhere in between. So if you had a piece of advice for anybody who's considering leaving, who is still dealing with the effects of leaving, um, what would you say? Um, okay, so the world that we live in is is full of nuance um and nuanced gray areas are, are not comfortable right it, it's not it's not easy to live in nuance right and this is why black and white frameworks can be so powerful because they give us the answers to what's right and what's wrong and that feels good because we have a model to cut through the nuance so suddenly with these black and white frameworks we can categorize anything in our lives as a good thing or a bad thing and though these frameworks provide this easy to achieve sense of, of peace, at least in the short term, um, they are fundamentally flawed. 
but much worse uh, throughout history, these types of frameworks have been used by a lot of people to manipulate and coerce. But there is good news, right? And the good news is that there is a tried and true method for getting through the nuance without the need of these black and white frameworks. And that is just very simply intentionally seeking out ideas that challenge our assumptions. Um, and I, I just want to provide two quick examples from the Bible here. So you know, one is, is the Apostle Paul. I think that uh, Paul is an excellent example of the importance of, of seeking out other worldviews, even if your only goal is to witness to someone. So in Acts 17, right, Paul engages with an Athenian philosopher uh, on, on Mars Hill, and he references there that altar to the unknown God, right? And he does this as a way to meet them where they are and introduce them to his Christian God. And this shows that he's seeking an understanding of Greek religious practices and their philosophies. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that to those under the law, I became like one under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. He's, he's meeting people where they are, studying their context. The, the, the second example is Jesus himself, right? In, in the ancient Hebrew rabbinical culture that Jesus existed, it was a good thing for each rabbi to have their own interpretation of the Torah, right? Every rabbi had their own set of teachings and that was called their yoke, their, their, their unique interpretation. And this is the context for Matthew 11, where, where Jesus says, you know, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke, like take my interpretation upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest in your souls for my yoke my interpretation of scripture is easy and my burden is light so em embracing conflicting interpretations of scripture was core to the culture in which Jesus lived so here's here's my advice or here's my hope right, as we learn in proverbs iron sharpens iron right? the truth will always hold up to scrutiny and, and so in this world, we find ourselves living now where algorithms are trained to serve us more of what makes us feel good, more of what we already think we know. May you find the wisdom and the courage to intentionally seek out that which challenges your beliefs.